You are listening to the Embrace What Matters podcast. My name is John Mahalik. I'm a seminary-trained author and speaker with over 25 years' experience encouraging others in the areas of spiritual life change and authentic relationship. My goal is to bridge the things of eternity with everyday experience. The current episodes in this podcast are sermons that I delivered while pastoring a church in the country of Honduras. If this podcast encourages you and helps you, can I ask that you please write a review and leave a rating? It will simply help more people find the podcast who may, like you, be searching for more purpose and meaning. Thanks again for listening and enjoy this week's episode. For those of you who are visiting, um, you have the privilege, I guess you might say, of uh, hearing the final uh, message, the final sermon in a very long, extended series that I began back in the fall, uh, shortly after we arrived, uh, called Belonging to Him. Uh, And for those of you who have been here, you're probably celebrating just a little bit uh, that we'll be moving on. We did take a break for Christmas and New Year's and some other things. but uh, So this will be uh, part 23 (laughs) of this uh, sermon series. We did a part one, a part two, and uh, today is our finale. So uh, the premise, uh, you'll see a little bit. I'm going to kind of rehash a few things. Uh, There's no way that I can... uh, properly conclude all the detail that we've gone into uh, in almost six months of teaching, Uh, so I don't plan to do that. Uh, I just want to sort of leave you with some concluding thoughts um, and also, you know, look back a little bit about where we started and uh, talk about where where we can move forward. And then next week we'll we'll start our uh, five-week Easter series, so looking forward to that as well. Belonging to him, belonging to him. Uh, If you were here back in the fall, uh, the very first message we did on this, I introduced you, uh, perhaps, to a guy named Viktor Frankl. Uh, As you can see, he died not too long ago. He uh, was a Jewish guy, an an Austrian, uh, who uh, was around during uh, World War II. And he's famous uh, for this book called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, as an Austrian, as a Jew during World War II, like uh, so many people, uh, he was thrown into the concentration camps. And he entered the camps uh, with his family, with his wife, and uh, the Germans would separate the families. Uh, And so he was separated from his wife to live among the men. And he never knew what happened to her while he was in the camps. Most people, as you know the history, uh, died in the camps. Uh, Frankel survived. And he developed a way of life and a philosophy and a way of looking at things through what developed in the camps and how he survived. And one of the things that kept Frankel going while he was in the camps was this. If there was even the remotest possibility that his wife was alive, because he didn't know, if there was even the remotest possibility that there was someone out there who he loved and who loved him, he had a reason to live. 
So that was his focus. That was when, it, when all hope was lost, when there was no reason to live, just the, the faith that somebody might be out there that loved him, who he loved, gave him a reason to live. And so the idea that he learned was that life is relationship. Life is relationship. If life has any merit, any meaning, it's that we have the opportunity to love and be loved. It's a foundational premise for meaning, a foundational premise for living. And so that leads us to the, the premise for the series that you, if you've been here, have heard over and over. The deepest need of the human heart is for healthy, intimate, and sustaining personal relationship with both God and other human beings. This is, to me, one of the best ways to think about Christianity. I think it's supported biblically. If you've been here, we've talked a lot about this biblically. But it's also the best way to communicate Christianity to other people because most people get this. They, they say, I get the relationship is the most important thing. And then if you can attach that to how God meets that need, it's a pretty uh, strong sell for Christianity. It's very compelling because it's true. So that's the premise. That's the premise to love and be loved. That relationship is the foundation. A couple of quotes on human relationships. Donald Miller says, right before you die, you'll realize that your whole life was about loving people. And then he says, and you watch too much television. <laughs> and then a quote about God, Raphael Simone, this is often attributed to Augustine. He says, to fall in love with God is the greatest of all romances. To seek him, the greatest adventure, to find him, the greatest human achievement. Love others, love God. This is the foundation. So this morning, I want to kind of conclude the series with this topic, no greater romance. No greater romance. To fall in love with God is the greatest of romances. And you might be saying, huh? <laughs> How could I fall in love with God? How, why would I attribute the word romance with God? We see scriptures like Jeremiah, and we see lots of scriptures like this. God is crazy about you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. We can find lots of scriptures like this that show us how nuts God is about us. However, why use the word romance? Could we have a divine romance with God? Uh, certainly, that might feel a little bit creepy <laughs> to think about that. How could I have a romantic relationship with God? Well... We look at the idea of relationship as it begins in Genesis. This is human relationship. God says it is not good that man should be alone. And again, this is something we developed in the series. So often we live our lives alone, whether people are around us or not. We live separate lives. We live independent lives. And we're not really fully in relationship, personal relationship with other people or with God. So that's, that's a fundamental problem that God establishes in the very beginning. And then he has a solution. Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. So this is the human level. This, these are human relationships. It's not good for us to be alone. And marriage is introduced as an answer to that problem. Now, there's plenty of people in the room that aren't married. There's some people I know are, are getting married soon. So we don't all identify with marriage. But marriage is sort of the flagship relationship that God uses in the Bible that sort of is the foundation whereby we can understand all sorts of relationships. Parenting, teachers, coworkers, friends. They're sort of come out of what's consistent in marriage. But how could our relationship with God be a romance? Well, obviously there's places where it's going to break down. <laughs> but marriage is, for instance, one of the best examples of what that intimacy with God looks like. There's parallels, you know, passion, adoration, mutual commitment, right? Things like that, that, are, that, are, that we see in, in marriages that are related to how we are to relate to God. But we also see a connection biblically. Ephesians quotes Genesis 2, when Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, this is not the only place, but a number of places the, the primary human relationship in Scripture, marriage, is related to the primary relationship that we have with God. Christ in the church, God in us, is somehow parallel to the idea of man and wife coming together and becoming one flesh. But it's not just that. It's also the idea that... The Bible is a series of bookends in some ways, meaning we start with Genesis and we end with Revelation. And Genesis begins with perfection, perfect relationship, a honeymoon, so to speak. Revelation ends again with perfection, perfect relationship, right? Oneness, happiness, blissfulness, whatever it is for eternity with God and man. So, in one sense, you could also call it paradise to paradise. We begin with Eden, the paradise. We end with Revelation, the New Jerusalem, paradise. But the one thing that you see that is consistent between these two bookends is marriage. Is marriage. We begin with the idea of marriage in Genesis 2. And in Revelation, we understand what it means to be the bride of Christ. At the end of all things, there will be a marriage supper. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Genesis 21, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So the way God intends for us to really understand personal relationship with him, fundamentally, is parallel to how he wants us to understand man and wife coming together. The church, you and I, are considered the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. It's talked about in the Gospels and other places. The fulfillment 
of history ends in a marriage. Ends in a marriage. So, again, the analogy breaks down in different ways, but ultimately, we are in a relationship with God in the same way that man and wife is in a relationship. The relationship that we have with God is a type of romance. But what kind of romance? <laughs> so this gets to the question, how do we see the issue of human love or, or romance? Is it Prince Charming and Cinderella? Most storytelling, at least until somewhat recently, has in, the, has in mind the idea of happily ever after, right? Cinderella, the idea of Cinderella is that we need to get boy and girl together, right? That's the whole story is how can we get these two together such that they can live happily ever after? Uh, I noticed uh, this week that uh, the, the television show, The Bachelor, uh, apparently just finished its 23rd season. <laughs> and so that tells me that people are attracted to the idea of, come on, let's see how it is. How can we get these two together? <laughs> right? And they go back and back and back. And, and, and so that's something that's appealing to us. I, I haven't counted, but I would guess that there are perhaps uh, 5,000 Hallmark Christmas movies <laughs> where we go and just we enjoy this wonderful kind of neat story, man meets woman, they get together and live happily ever after. And so in many ways, that's kind of seeded in all of us, that we want the story to end well. Now, we have other types of storytelling, again, and maybe in the last few decades especially, uh, that's abandoned that, right? It is naive to assume that everything's going to be wrapped up with a tidy bow, <laughs> that the resolution is going to be perfect, that man and woman's going to get together, right? And everything's going to be perfect. So, again, a lot of stuff, if you're not on Hallmark, <laughs> you can turn to the other stories on television and movies where everything is disaster, right? Everything is about... <laughs> Nothing ends happily ever after. It's all about tragedy. It's all about our weaknesses and violence and sex. And just, it's all open-ended, right? Nothing is resolved because that's how life is, right? We're not to live, we're not to expect things to be resolved in general, in life in general, but certainly when it comes to romance as well. And we see that in our society. So how do we negotiate that? How do we understand romance when it comes to the Bible in the way our culture uh, persuades us to see romance. Is it about happily ever after? Or is it about disaster? <laughs> that we shouldn't expect anything. I would say that, again, the Bible is a series of bookends. In a sense, we are really between happily ever afters. <laughs> Right? Genesis 1 and 2 is boy meets girl, man meets God. We have the honeymoon, everything's great. And really, most of the rest of the Bible <laughs> is what happens after, <laughs> happily ever after. Because, right? again, the stories don't usually tell us that. Right? Boy meets girl, they get married, have a great honeymoon, and then life begins. And then we see what someone looks like in the morning. <laughs> right? then, we, then we have arguments. Then we have to raise kids and have carpools and, and deal with selfishness, right? That's what happens after happily ever after. And again, the stories don't 
often tell us that. But really, we're living between our happily ever afters. Again, we had the honeymoon in Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 3, the relationship turned a little sour, right? Man and woman sinned against God, and it affected their human relationships and the divine relationship. The marriage started to become in trouble. To the woman, God said, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, in pain, you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. God sent him and the woman out from the garden of Eden. This marriage is in trouble. <laughs> this is after happily ever after, right? The honeymoon is over. Whether you would call this a divorce or certainly a separation or a troubled relationship, the relationship between Adam and Eve and the rest of us became corrupt. <laughs> it wasn't as pure. It wasn't as ideal. The romance was not so fun anymore. The relationship between God became corrupt. We were separated from God, from this love. We were separated from it. So we're sort of between happily ever afters. The biblical story does not hold back from showing us the consequences of our broken relationship with God and with each other. Just take a tour through the Old Testament, for instance, right? The stuff we see on TNT and all these other shows, the depravity of man is all over the Old Testament. The Bible doesn't hold back what it means to be separated from God and from each other. But get to the New Testament, and this Jesus drops into the picture as a bridge between the pain of separation and our hope for reconciliation. Jesus is real about our sin and weaknesses while inviting us to consider a miracle where this broken marriage can be healed and restored. And so we look at Ephesians 5 again. This is a little bit of an expansion. Again, you see the tie-in between marriage and our romance with God. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So we think about our traditional explanations of the gospel. You know, Jesus died for my sins. I get to go to heaven. But see the tie-in. Jesus sacrificed himself in the context of the way a husband sacrifices himself for his wife. Jesus essentially sort of played both mediator and suitor, <laughs> right, when he went to the cross. His objective was to restore this marriage, to get, a, get man and woman back together again. That was a one way that we can look at what he did on the cross. That's one way that we can define the gospel. The romance needed to be restored, and only the bridegroom could restore it. So I've repeated a hard question throughout this series, if you've been here. 
The question is, does the gospel have a genuine effect on my life? Again, a bunch of people in the room that probably been Christian their whole lives, but again, we can get pretty far along in the game and realize that we've been faking it. Saying we believe something, but not really living it. Is the gospel, does it have a genuine effect on my life, or is there a wall of separation between what I say I believe about personal relationship with God and how I truly live the way I relate to others? Do I say I have a personal relationship and don't live it with God? Do I say I understand what it means biblically, but I really don't? Do I have a personal relationship with God, but maybe I don't <laughs> have a healthy personal relationship with other human beings? Those are all important questions, right? Because relationship is the most important thing. So we've talked about lots of different ways that we can answer this throughout the series. But this morning, I just want to leave you by answering that question in the, in the spectrum of the idea of romance. Meaning, what is romance? How do I understand human romance? And how might I biblically understand divine romance? What is romance? Uh, this is a shirt that I don't think I've worn here at church before we arrived uh, in August. And it's been uh, on my shelf or in, in the closet for quite a long time. And one reason is uh, there was a huge tear right here. And Zola uh, is uh, very good on the sewing machine. And, and I finally nagged her enough that she, she got around to, to patching it. And so uh, one of the other things that Zola does for me uh, that I'm so grateful for, uh, only because it would take me 10 times as long, is she, she will iron my outfit on Sunday mornings. And so she grabbed my, I asked her to do this shirt and she did the shirt and she brought it to me. And this side of the, of the shirt was torn this morning. <laughs> and I started bawling and I said, I really want to wear this shirt. And I, I really was whining like a, like a child. And, and she just, I said, all right, well, just tell me, just tell me, uh, am I going to wear this shirt or do I need to get another shirt? You know, I was stomping around like a five-year-old. And she just sighed and took the shirt and then came back a little while later. You know, the best way apparently is to patch it, but she, she grabbed some, a needle and thread and, and, you know, if you looked at it closely, uh, you would see it, but I got to wear the shirt. <laughs> now, while Zola might not call that romance, <laughs> I certainly do, right? What is romance? Is romance about the first date and the first feeling of attraction, the overcoming the obstacles to get together, getting engaged, getting married, going on a honeymoon, having dates? Sure, that should be romance. But once you get married, <laughs> this is romance for me. Again, for her, maybe not. But to me, romance is in the very ordinary backroom, simple ways of life, my wife showed me her love. How much she adores me and cares for me and is committed to me. By, by a simple act of one, dealing with me, my whining, <laughs> ironing my, my outfit, but sewing something for me that, where I probably could have worn another shirt, and, but, but she took the time to do it. What is romance? 
Sometimes I think about romance in, in the divine sense more like Jacob back in Genesis. Jacob wrestles with God in Genesis. And God says, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And if you know Jacob's story, very selfish guy, did everything for himself, even in his marriage and his family, his relationship with his brother, very selfish, deceiving guy. But God wooed him. God captured him. <laughs> and God changed his name. And the, and, and the way that process worked, that, that relationship, that intimacy, kind of climaxed, so to speak, in this wrestling match. What is romance with God? Is it joy and adoration and all those things? Yes, I would hope so. But it's also <laughs> wrestling with God in the midst of my selfishness where God gives me a new name, where I ask for his blessing. In the time in between, I sort of think that's a little bit more what romance looks like than anything else. So, are we looking for perfection in our human relationships with God? If we are, we're never really going to live in proper personal relationship with God or with others. All right? We're going to always be in denial, <laughs> wanting the honeymoon where the honeymoon doesn't exist. It will exist again, but it doesn't exist right now. We're sort of, I don't know, in premarital counseling. <laughs> We're on the way. We're moving again towards this restoration of the marriage. Is romance the romance that God offers us in the here and now? What about working through our differences? Is that romance? When you get, get done with the honeymoon, that's a big part of romance, in my view, with God and with others. Is romance patience in the midst of dysfunction? We have these wonderful, perfect wedding ceremonies, and then life begins. <laughs> and we're all imperfect, we're all selfish, we're all disorganized. And the process of love and romance is working through that to a place of unity and affection. Isn't romance kindness in the everyday ordinary choices? <laughs> Isn't that what romance is? Isn't romance perseverance and commitment when our relationships become boring and even hopeless? Describes a lot of marriages. <laughs> Describes different phases of parenting, friendship, churches, whatever, ministry. Isn't that what romance is? Perseverance and commitment, even though the flowers aren't always around, <laughs> the passion isn't always there. Isn't that what romance is? Isn't romance trusting in an acceptance and belonging that comes from above, where God, from whom I have the right to expect nothing, gives me everything? Isn't that what romance is? Divine romance? Our relationships are imperfect. Marriages, whatever else, right? We're human beings, they're perfect, imperfect. But that doesn't mean that relationship can't move towards restoration. And that's the whole process of living out the gospel. For me to live out the gospel honestly 
practically is to accept the fact that we're imperfect, but God still wants to restore this thing. And that should filter out from belonging to him to the way I belong to others. In our imperfection, in our selfishness, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is the cross. And God is in the midst of restoring all things. What is romance? Shared experience, feeling valued, affection, forgiveness, all these things. But ultimately, it's about knowing and being known. We see this in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Isn't romance spending years with a friend or a spouse about knowing and being known physically, emotionally, spiritually? I mean, doesn't your spouse kind of know everything? <laughs> you know everything about them and you love them through it. You value them above all things, not just despite their weaknesses, but so often because of them. To know and be fully known, that's romance. Ultimately, we will see God in such a way that the marriage will be restored and we will know even as we are fully known. Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So not exactly <laughs> the same parallel as the man and wife getting together, but it's pretty close. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. All the pain we experience due to separation. There won't be any pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So a final word. Ultimately, True romance never happens without sacrifice. Most of us understand that once we get beyond the honeymoon. For any marriage or any meaningful relationship to work, you must each sacrifice your own way in order to become one. Jesus sacrificed himself so that you could become one with God. Unknowing. A communion that will last for eternity. Two lives join as one and create more life. There's no greater romance than that. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we're so grateful for your love that you loved us first <laughs> from the very beginning of time before time itself you loved us 
you called us forward into existence to live a life where we could love you back and love others as you have loved. Lord, I thank you for the gift of life. I thank you for the gift of relationship that we can understand that personal relationship is not just a calling card of Christianity, but it is a three-dimensional, visceral, real-world miracle that you have come to redeem us. You have come to woo us back and build on a broken relationship and to restore this broken relationship because of the sacrifice of your son on the cross. And so, Lord, I just ask that we have a balanced sense of where we are and where we're going. That the honeymoon of Genesis may be over, but the marriage feast and the supper of the Lamb is coming. And that we can rejoice in the hope of that salvation, that reconciliation, and that restoration. And live our lives in such a way that we don't have to wait for that until heaven comes, but we can live with a heart of reconciliation and restoration in the here and now and experience the miracle of a marriage made new. Lord, I ask for these things and I ask for your guidance and protection and provision in the coming week in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me close. In Ephesians chapter 2, you were once far off, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So, go out this week in peace, in the unity of Christ, and invite others to belong to him. Amen. This podcast is produced by Embrace What Matters Ministries and is available most anywhere podcasts can be found. I encourage you to subscribe, share, and please leave a comment or send me an email. To learn more about this ministry, my devotional book, and other writings, please visit EmbraceWhatMatters.com.